One of the most convincing evidences that the Bible is the Word of God is the transforming impact it has had on millions of people over the centuries. One of those persons whose life was radically changed was Eric Barger. His confrontation with God's Word and his son totally transformed Eric's life. At the time it happened, Eric was a drug addicted rock and roll musician. Today, he is the spokesman for Take a Stand Ministries. Stay tuned for his fascinating and inspirational testimony. Lamb and Lion Ministries presents Christ in Prophecy, a program that focuses on the fundamentals of Bible prophecy, showing how current events in the news relate to biblical predictions of end time events and the soon return of Jesus. Now, here's your host, Dr. David Reagan. Greetings in the name of Jesus, our blessed hope, and welcome to Christ in Prophecy. Last week on this program we talked about the supernatural power of the Bible as the Word of God to transform lives. This week we want to provide you with a dramatic first-hand testimony of that transforming power. We have invited Eric Barger, founder and director of Take a Stand Ministries, to share his personal testimony with you. Welcome back, Eric. Thank you, Dave. I'm sure glad to be here this week. You know, I've given my testimony all over the U.S. and Canada, and I hope it will be an encouragement to you. And something that I've learned along the way is that so many people were born and raised going to church. They had some Christian experience. Maybe their parents were Christians, or they were baptized as little children, or they did Christian things. Well, that was my life. Uh, My grandparents raised me and sent me faithfully every Sunday to a a church in downtown Parkersburg, West Virginia, where I grew up. And I heard all about the great stories from the Bible, all about the Old Testament characters, and of course the New Testament, in particular about the Lord Jesus. And I did all the Christian stuff. I was in vacation Bible school and the kids' choirs, and I was baptized when I was two years of age against my will. But all that stuff did not equate to my name being written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Even though I would have claimed to have been a Christian, and I did all those Christian things, I wish somebody would explain to me in a way that I could have understood that I needed to be born again, to make a personal confession of faith and to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, and that just being a good person or just doing religious things could not and would not save me. I wish somebody would explain that because my life would have been radically different if that would have been the case. Now, I mentioned my grandparents raised me, and I'm so grateful and thankful that that they gave me the upbringing they did. They sent me to that that local church there in West Virginia. It was a Methodist church, but it could really have been any kind of church. My grandfather was an honorable man. My grandmother, uh, a great uh, mother to me, and my mom was more like a sister because my mom had a condition in both hips. It was rheumatoid arthritis. I never saw my mother walk up one step. She got that when she was in high school, and she and my dad married, and they were together a year or so, and I came along during that time, and uh, they divorced, and I lived in my grandparents' house. In fact, from the time when I was born till I was 17, I lived in my grandparents' house, and my grandmother became like a mother to both me and my mother. My grandfather was a, a father to both of us, and he was an honorable man, good people, and I'm grateful, although I will say this, and this is no disrespect to them. We didn't have a Christian altar in our house. We didn't have a a Bible time. We didn't have prayer time together. But we lived in what I call a kind of a Christian home. And, And how I wish, if I was to be able to start again with my children, that I would raise them according to the Word of God and raise them with, with Christianity as being the center of our lives. But that really wasn't the case for me, though I would have certainly claimed to have been Christian. There's no doubt about that. 
So just the most important thing in my testimony that I want to get across to you, the very most important thing for many of you is that just because you do Christian stuff, just because you're raised by good people in a Christian surrounding, that doesn't mean that you're born again. One time, uh, many years ago, in the early days of our ministry, a lady walked down the, the middle aisle of a church in Sterling, Colorado, and we, I just gave an invitation. There were people around the altar being prayed for, and, and in kind of a loud voice, almost yelling at me from about the third row back, she began to say, I'm so sick and tired of you preachers talking about being born again. Well, I don't need to be born again. I'm a good person. My mother did it right the first time, and besides that, I'm an American. You know, like God's got a special door marked USA here. And there are people all over our culture, I believe some watching right now, who have that kind of thinking. Well, early in my life, they tested me and they found out that I had musical talent. They knew I wasn't going to be mechanical. That was obvious. And if you don't believe that, just ask my wife. So I was mechanical and I I wasn't really going to crunch numbers, but, but I had musical talent. And why God gives one person one thing and another person another, I can't, I can't say for sure. He is a God of diversity. And I do know this, he has gifts that he's given to each and every person and he wants you to explore and to ask him and to pray and to seek him and to find out what those gifts are that he has for you he's got different gifts that he wants to give you no doubt about it you know in those early days I grew up without being around my dad and one of the best parts of my testimony is the fact that my dad and I have developed a terrific relationship here later in life and you think about how many people don't know who their dad is or who their mom is even? But my dad and I do have this terrific relationship, and he and I are the last two in our family. My grandparents and my mother are gone, but my dad and I are it. We're the last ones in, in my family. And, and in those early days, he didn't have much say in what I did. But they found out that I had this musical talent, and they bought me uh, an instrument, and I began to play in the school band. And most of you all know what the school bands sound like, and they're not exactly what you want to be around very much. And, and then I began to beg my grandmother to buy me a guitar. My grandfather and my mother didn't see it, but she did. And she went down and she bought me a guitar, and they got me some guitar lessons. And I wanted to learn to play the songs that were on the radio when I was a little boy. And, you know, it was a total different world back then. There were only three channels on television. They were all in black and white. There wasn't any cable or satellite TV. Uh, It was a different world. And the most rebellious song on the radio was It's My Party and I'll Cry If I Want To. There weren't any songs about sex or drugs or suicide or rebellion or nihilism or fatalism. Those weren't the themes of the music that we see that's so prevalent today all around us. And, And so it looked so innocent growing up and learning to play those songs and play those instruments and so on. It it looked so innocent at the time. And really it was in comparison to the world we live in today. And so the guitar teacher that I began to take from, he got a crush on my mother and he got himself invited to dinner one night. And, And so at dinner, though I don't certainly remember this, my grandmother told me this several years before she passed away. Evidently this guitar teacher asked where else I was taking lessons. And they said, well, nowhere else. You know, you're the only one that he's taking lessons from. And, and uh, why do you ask? And he says, because every week this boy comes in and he's teaching me the new chords he's learned and the songs that he's learned that week. The only thing is, we're not teaching him any chords. He's only learning scales in the book that we're teaching him from. So I was learning those chords by sitting up in my room, playing records that I had bought with my allowance, 
And I know that there's probably somebody watching that we need to put a picture of a record up on the screen. And you're going to see some graphics come up as I'm, as I'm giving my testimony that kind of relate to it. You know, a lot of people have never seen a record. Well, I, I had these little 45 RPM records and I was playing those records and I was by ear learning the sounds of the chords and then the songs that were on those records, the, the hit songs of those days in the late 1950s and early 1960s. And again, it was so, so innocent. You know, uh, how would you explain records in a turntable? It's a, it's a total different world today than the world that we lived in back then. Well, I began to beg my grandmother to go buy me a set of drums, and I wanted to learn to play drums, and I was accomplishing doing this. And I think about all those hours and days and weeks and months and years that we spent playing in my grandmother's front room there in the house where I grew up. And And so she got me a set of drums, and I was teaching a friend of mine how to play a little guitar. We found a better drummer, and so I switched to guitar, my friend switched to bass, and we had a little trio, and we started to learn songs together. A local disc jockey heard about us, and he invited us to come down to the radio station that went off the air at dusk. And he set up one microphone in the middle of the recording studio room in in that that, uh, uh, radio station, and he recorded one of our songs and then started playing it on the air and announcing our names. Now, listen, if you're in the 6th or 7th grade and, and the disc jockey is playing your song on the radio announcing your name, you're cool at school, at least with some people. And then this same disc jockey asked us if we would go, come and play at this very innocent dance that he was holding every Saturday night, very innocent, very innocuous by today's standards. And so we told him we didn't have enough songs to play for three hours, so we played everything we knew three times. And at the end of that dance in February or so of 1963, just before I was 12 years of age, that disc jockey handed each one of us in that band a crisp $10 bill. That would equate to $100, $110, $120 today. That was more money than my other friends were making, uh, raking leaves or shoveling snow in the middle of the winter. And I made it in three hours playing in a band, doing what I wanted to do. I couldn't believe somebody's paying me to do this. So as time moved along... Then we got some more members of the band. We learned some more songs, and, and uh, we began to play at other places. And we, we, we couldn't get around. None of us had cars, and my grandparents never owned a car. And so uh, it wasn't that they couldn't have. They just decided they didn't want one in their lives. Can you imagine that day? But that was the day I grew up in. A- and so uh, a local fireman and some of his buddies were like our chaperones, and they would take us from place to place as we would play. And we'd come back to my grandmother's house on Friday nights and on Saturday nights after we would play, and we would crash there. The only thing is, my grandmother didn't make me get up and go to church on Sunday mornings. And how I wish that my grandmother would have made me get up and go to church as part of the deal, if I was going to be out playing in the band on Saturday, that I would also have to go to church on Sunday for just maybe... I would have heard the message of Jesus Christ. Just maybe it would have dawned on me. I would have realized that I needed to be born again, that I needed to make a confession of faith and come to Christ, and my life would be radically different, and you wouldn't be hearing this testimony today. You see, by the time I was 16 years of age, I was the only kid in my high school who was taking drugs. To my knowledge, nobody else in my high school. Now, this was a a school of 3,000 students, the only public school in the county, the only public high school in the county, 
It had a football stadium that sat 5,000, a 27-acre campus for a high school. It was a huge school, yet I couldn't find drugs there. Can you imagine today it would be an absolutely phenomenal thing for a Christian school of 300 not to have at least one student who was secretly experimenting with drugs. But I couldn't find drugs back then. Remember, I didn't know what a gang was at that point in my life. I'd never heard of this kind of stuff. But where I learned about all this is through the lifestyle of the music industry. I was playing in a bar band every, uh, every night, six nights a week, for seven months in a row when I was a junior year in high school. And I was going down to Athens, Ohio, 40 miles away to do that. Every night, back and forth. And uh, that's where I got turned on to drugs. You know, it wasn't very long before it all started because when I was 17, I moved to Seattle. That meant rock stardom for a lot of people. And by the time I was 21, I was playing all over the West Coast in bars and nightclubs and small concerts. And I had expanded the drugs I was using from just trying to experiment with marijuana to speed and LSD and all kinds of psychedelics. Now, by the time I was 25, I was a full-blown cocaine addict. And yet I had what my peers called good. The people around me that I knew, they, they, they wanted what I wanted. You see... I met my wife while I was playing in a bar band helping to build a recording studio. I'd already given up on the idea that touring around the country was going to uh, get me discovered. If my songs or my talent was going to be used, it'd be because I got involved in the recording studio. So I built one studio and then helped remodel another studio and then finally was the studio manager at a studio that is still there today, a a state-of-the-art place. And so... Uh, those were the days when, when I was out looking for talent and I would find uh, musicians or songwriters and I would bring them in the studio and we would record them and do a, uh, like a limited short-term contract. If we could take their product and sell it, then we would get part of it. And during that time, I, I met the, the woman I'm married to and I, was, I had a living girlfriend at the time, but that didn't matter because remember, if you're a rock musician in the 1960s, if it feels good, do it. That was what we dreamt, dreamt up. Being that I came from the original hippie generation, you know, the way I felt like was, uh, you know, it's, it's my thing. I'll do my own thing no matter what. It was all about what I wanted, what my flesh wanted. That's the way we lived. And that's still the way many people who are looked up to by Christian kids today in the music business, in the entertainment world, that's still the way many of them think and live too. That is the attitude that is being spread today all through our culture. So I met my wife. We had a couple of dates and we realized we were made for each other because I was involved in the New Age movement. I was throwing the yarrow sticks at the I Ching. I was reading my astrology chart, which was a scroll that you unrolled down to the floor. We were both drug addicts. She was into witchcraft. We both loved rock music. And that was the glue, if you can call it that, that held us together. In fact, we met each other and three weeks later, we flew down to, to Lake Tahoe and got married. And then the trouble really began because we had no basis in our lives to hold ourselves together. And, uh, you know, nobody told me you had to give up all your girlfriends once you, once you uh, 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 get married. But I wasn't going to do that because I'm going to do whatever I want to do. You know, there's, there's uh, several pictures of me. One is me playing on stage at the Paramount Theater in Seattle, and there's a smile on my face, and it looks like I have everything together. It looks like I'm really happy. But really inside, I'm trying to, trying to find something that will do away with the pain I've got. And that's what a lot of people do. They run to the drugs and the alcohol. And I was running to those things and the world of the occult, looking for some sort of reason, looking for some sort of basis for my life. Well, we tried marriage counselors. That really didn't work. 
So we went on our lives, both of us as drug addicts, both of us experimenting in mysticism, both of us just aimless with what we were going to do with, with ourselves and with our two beautiful daughters that had come along. And how I wish that my daughters had never smelt pot smoke in our house or never seen lines of co- cocaine on a coffee table or never heard their parents yelling and screaming the most filthy profanity, profanities at one another. I, I wish my kids would never have heard that, but, but they did. And all I can do is go to them and say, please forgive me. And I I have done that, and we've had long talks about it. My older daughter, who is not a Christian, I went to her in my sister-in-law's kitchen uh, one Christmas time a few years ago and put my arms around her and said, Kenny, you don't have to say a word. I just want to tell you how much I wish I'd been a better father. I wish I would have done more. I'd have been the right guy when you were growing up, but, but I wasn't. And I think that's the position of strength, to recognize that that was what you used to be, but today you're a different person. See, this is the same person, the same body that took all those drugs, that did all that stuff, but Jesus transformed me, but not quite yet in the story. You see, we were in the middle of a big fight one one night, and my wife, I didn't know she could throw the yellow pages that far, but they're about that thick, you know, in the Seattle area where we lived at the time, and she threw them and hit me in the back of the head and was swearing a blue streak at me, and I don't remember saying this, but she expressly remembers that I picked up those yellow pages and I shook them at her in our, in our hallway where we were standing. And I said, if we're ever going to get our marriage straightened out, it's got to be a Christian counselor. And I shook those yellow pages. Now, what could make me say that? I don't know. All I know is that now that I've read the Bible and I, I, I see what God's word says, I found a story in the Old Testament where God talked through a donkey So I guess he could have talked through me back in those days as well. But you know, the next morning, she locked me out of the bedroom and I slept on the couch. So the next morning, and morning for us in those days was about noon or so. So the next morning, I woke up and I did what anybody would do that didn't know what to do. I opened the yellow pages up to religious counselors and I closed my eyes and I put my finger down and I called where my finger had landed. It landed on a name, Ted Bradshaw. And um, I called up and Ted answered the phone. He said, good morning, God bless you. And you have to understand that back in those days I talked funny because every sentence ended in the word man. Know what I mean, man? Wow, man, far out, man. You're looking at somebody who actually used the word groovy and was dead serious when he did it. And so he says, good morning, God bless you. And I must have thought, wow, far out, God's on the phone. You know, that's how spaced out we were in those days. And so I said, you know, like, man, like, we need a marriage counselor, man. Like, can you help us out, man? The first question Ted asked was, are you a Christian? And, of course, I said, well, sure, man, because I've been baptized when I was a little boy. Because my grandparents were Christians, and I went to a Christian church, and, hey, I live in America. And I went through my little checklist, not a Buddhist, not a Hindu, not a Muslim. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, that's the way a lot of people are. The next question, is your wife a Christian? And I said, well, yeah, because she also had been baptized in a, in a church against her will when she was a little girl. By the way, we've both been baptized since we got saved, but just to clarify that for anybody who's wondering out there. Well, you know, so he said, come on in, and we went in that afternoon. He told me sometime later, two, three years later, that after that first visit with us, he knew the only hope we had was to come to Jesus Christ because he, he knew if the stuff we were telling him was accurate, how much more there probably was behind the scenes that we weren't telling him yet. 
because we had lots of problems with each other. We were blaming each other for all kinds of stuff when really it was just our lack of understanding how to live godly lives underneath what God wants for a marriage. Well, my wife kept going to the counselor. And uh, she, she wanted help. She, I believe the, the mothering instinct, you know, the paternal instinct with her, she wanted help for her and for our family and for our daughters. But, you know, I didn't really need to go anymore because actually she's the one with the problem, not me. You know, I, I wanted her to get help, but I don't need any help, of course. So I made up every excuse I could not to go back to the counselor anymore, even though she kept going. Well, she did what he told her to do. He, she went and bought a Bible. He encouraged her to get a, the scriptures and she started reading it. Folks, she came to Jesus Christ by reading the Word of God. And she recognized that if, she, if Nicodemus needed to be born again, that she needed to be born again as well. Now, she didn't run out and make a profession of faith to anybody about it, but she came to Christ reading the Bible. And, uh, in, you know, I came home one night, and there's the Bible laying on the coffee table, and I think, well, that's okay as long as she doesn't get weird with it. Well, well she got weird with it, of course, because she started reading it and believing it. And then she kind of goaded me into going to a counseling session one day. And I'm sitting there just trying to hope we can get out of there quickly because I want nothing to do with the stuff he's talking about because I was face-to-face with a real, live, evangelical, Bible-believing, born-again Christian as a counselor who was telling me I need to take responsibility as a father and a husband, who was talking to me about stuff in my life that I didn't want to talk about because I wanted to do my own thing. And every time he would see us, he would give an invitation. Would either of us like to receive Christ and be free of our sins or something like that? And you know, that day he said that to us and I'm sitting there just want to get out of the place and Melanie breaks down and begins to cry. And I'm there when that counselor prays the sinner's prayer with Melanie and leads her through the prayer of repentance to Jesus Christ and she was set free of her sins. I believe she'd already come to Christ by reading the scripture and coming to faith. But she was now confessing before men that Jesus Christ was Lord. As soon as I could get her out of that office, I got her out to the car and I lit up a joint and I blew smoke in her face and I swore at her all the way home. And I went home and packed a suitcase. I went and lived in the recording studio for three weeks because I wasn't going to put up with some Jesus freak. And then one night when I was missing my kids and missing my wife and missing a home-cooked meal and all my clothes were, were dirty and I was tired of sleeping on the floor in the studio, I called her up. Can I come home, honey? And she said, yes, Eric, please come home. We've been praying for you. Because she'd been in church. She'd been in Bible study already. And I came home that night. I walked in the kitchen, and the Apostle Paul's sister is cooking dinner. And you know, when she figured out that preaching at me wasn't going to change me, and she started loving me unconditionally, it changed everything. And then for two years, I put her through complete hell. I mocked everything she did, didn't want to have anything to do with it. I got deeper and deeper into drugs, a thousand, twelve hundred, even fifteen hundred dollars a week on my cocaine addiction. Yet I was producing people who went on to win Grammy Awards. It was only a matter of time for me to have my dream fulfilled to make it in the music business. But I was so empty and so vacant inside. And then on a rainy, cold Friday night in February of 1981, she found my car sitting outside one of my girlfriend's houses. That facilitated me coming back and finding a note on the windshield that she'd written. And I just decided, it's over. It's a charade. Why keep going? And so that evening, that night, all night long, before the sun came up, I took enough cocaine to kill a person, and I overdosed. Somehow I made it to the hotel in North Seattle, uh, not too far away. I don't know how I got there. But I laid in that hotel room and I shook and tremored for two and a half days. Sunday night, I come back to our house 
I began to blame my wife for all my problems again and for whatever reason sat down in the middle of the floor and I just kind of passed out. And She says I laid there for a half hour while she's praying for me in the middle of the night, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. She's bought a book that day earlier on the Sunday at the Christian bookstore. She's bought a book called Raising Toward Judgment by David Wilkerson. And she's underlined things in the pages. She's trying to keep her mind off me. And I decided I'm going to leave my wife and divorce her and walk away from my family. And so when I come to on the floor that night, I kind of slither up onto the couch. And that book is laying there between us. And I picked the book up and I didn't look at the table of contents or who the author was and I didn't know who that was. I just opened the book to page 60 and looked down and there were three words in the middle of the page that she had underlined. They were, God hates divorce. He hates divorce. He loves the divorced. He loves people, but he hates divorced. And I looked down on that page and saw that and realized she said, at that point, I just fell off the floor under the couch, on, on, off the couch onto the floor. And, and she said, I was crying so hard that she thought the neighbors might hear. And she came down and put her arms around me and began to, to comfort me. And, you know, at some point, I began to say, Melanie, forgive me. You know, I was always sorry when I'd been caught. But this time, I really meant it. And she said, it went on and on and on. And then finally, I began to say, God, forgive me. And I believe what happened the first time I said that was, my name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And I, I know that doesn't equate to, the, to praying the Americanized Sinner's Prayer that, that I've been so fortunate to pray with so many thousands of people through our ministry and through the time that we've had. But I believe I was crying out to the God who I knew about from that Sunday school in West Virginia and the God who I'd watched transform and revolutionize my wife's life as he delivered her from drinking and smoking and drugs and the lifestyle we used to live. And I was crying out to the God who I'd seen in that marriage counselor, Ted. The next morning I went to Ted's office and he knew the miracle had happened. He was in tears as we were arriving at his office because he knew what he'd prayed for for so long had finally happened. And that morning, sitting in his office as he prayed for me, all I can say is I know I had a supernatural experience with God. I realized a few minutes later that I wasn't shaking anymore after being overdosed on cocaine. And you know, I never went through any kind of withdrawals, never went through any kind of drug treatment centers, but God delivered. I don't know why he doesn't do that with everybody, but he did it with me, and he can do it for you. If you'd never received Jesus as Lord and Savior, I encourage you to do that today. Welcome back to Christ in Prophecy. And Eric, thank you for that inspiring testimony. I nearly fell out of seat when you talked about the fact that if God could speak to a donkey, he could speak to you. And I want to tell you something. Your wife must be a saint. Uh, uh, the only reason I think your marriage still exists is because of the power of Jesus Christ working through her life. Yeah, she, uh, she stood for me and she prayed for me when I was really unlovable. And I just thank God that she did spiritual warfare for me. And I encourage people, if you've got an unsaved loved one or spouse, Hang in there. Keep praying for them. Don't give up. Well, speaking of praying, uh, how about telling our viewers how to come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Well, maybe you've prayed this simple prayer before. Maybe you haven't. But if you know you need to get things right with God, it's a simple thing to do. And it's not about us. It's all about Jesus. Just pray, Father, in Jesus' name, I confess I'm a sinner. I know I need you. And I confess Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Come into my heart. Forgive me of my sins and live through me. In Jesus' name, amen. It's that simple. It's that simple. 
come into Christ, making him Lord and Savior. I encourage you to do it. Thank you, Eric. And I want to thank you once again for being with us over these past few weeks. May the Lord bless your ministry and continue to magnify your voice. Well, folks, that's our program for this week. Until next week, the Lord willing, this is Dave Reagan speaking for Lamb and Lion Ministries saying, look up, be watchful, for our redemption is drawing near. If you enjoyed these programs with Eric Barger, then you will want to order our previous series of programs with Eric in our album, Defending the Faith. In those four programs, Dr. Reagan and Nathan Jones interview Eric on how you can defend your Christian faith. Few people can keep up with all the information and misinformation concerning apostasy. So now you can get authoritative, biblically solid teaching on these constantly changing topics. Topics. Eric has immersed himself in the study of false doctrines, and you can benefit from his 25 years of research. Purchase this DVD for yourself and another one for your church library. It's a great learning resource for Bible study groups, Sunday schools, family viewing and personal study, and topics covered are the New Age movement, universalism, apostasy, popular books with heretical teachings, the emergent church movement, doctrinal ignorance amongst Christians, and how to defend one's faith. This wonderful DVD album containing these four programs with Eric Barger is available for a gift of $15 plus shipping and handling. Order online at lamblion.com or call the number you see on the screen. Thank you for joining us on today's Christ in Prophecy, a presentation of Lamb and Lion Ministries, a non-denominational ministry dedicated to teaching the fundamentals of biblical prophecy and proclaiming the soon return of Jesus.